We're talking about beginnings. We're talking about Genesis. Genesis meaning beginning, the start, the origination. We're talking about the beginning of all life, the first humans, uh, how society was built on on marriage is coming up soon. Uh, So much being initiated. And tonight we're actually going to do a little bit of a break from what we've been doing as far as walking through Scripture verse by verse by verse. We're actually going to back up a little bit and cover something in more detail. And last week we talked through, we basically went through all of chapter 1 and all of the creation account and we really wanted to look at that from the whole perspective of God creating everything uh, from the earth itself all the way down to us, to humankind and the unique creation that we are. But we didn't really dive into much detail what it means to be made in God's image and what, what that holds for us. There's so much there. And so I wanted to take a, a little topical breakout tonight, and we're going to talk about what it means to be made in His image, what a unique creation we are, and look at Scripture a little bit more deeply on that subject. And so we're going to spend some time recapping and talking about Genesis 1, 26 through the end of the chapter, and then some of this will also tie into some things in chapter 2. You know, throughout history, great leaders, people who have accomplished much, they've all done something pretty in common. They usually build something to immortalize their remembrance, don't they? They, they try and build some great building or some monument or whatever else uh, to represent their mark on history so they're not forgotten. And many times the greatest symbol of sort of their representation of themselves is to actually make a statue of themselves, to make an image, isn't it? And we see that. Even us as humans, we've done that throughout history. Great leaders will have some famous sculptor or, uh, or, or um, some stonemason or someone carve uh, a stone and, and try and make it to resemble them as much as possible. And obviously, no matter how good that artist is or that sculptor is, that image can only go so far in representing the real thing, right? It's, it's never going to really capture the full essence of who that person really was. And so there's limitations to that image. You know, it's kind of like when we're driving across the rim here on the mountain. How many times have you seen just an amazing view or an amazing sunset? And you grab your iPhone or your Android if you have a lesser phone, and you... <laughs> see what I did there? Oh, man, I started to battle, didn't I? But you, you try and capture it, don't you? You try and get an image of it, and you pull over real fast, or you stick your hand out the window, and you're snapping all these shots, and then you want to show everybody on Facebook how amazing this view was. And you go to look at it on your phone. I don't know if this happens to you. It happens to me. I look at it. I go, man, it just doesn't quite capture it. You ever feel that way? So, and you try to get these different angles, and you try adjusting all these lenses, try and capture how amazing God's creation is and this view of what you're seeing. And it seems like no matter what you can do, what you do, you can't actually capture it. It's like, you know, you just have to tell people, you know, you just had to be there. You had to see it for yourself. And so we see, in the same manner, um, you know, an image can only do so much to reflect the original thing, the real deal. But we still do get a good idea of what it is meant to represent. And us in particular, God is an especially good craftsman. And he has done some pretty amazing things in creating us in his image. And I really want to dive into that more deeply 
um, because I think God's word has a lot to say about it. I think we would all gain much from it. Psalms 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the earth and the firmament shows His handiwork. You know, and when we think about nature and creation pointing to God and declaring who He is, we think about Romans 1 talking about how the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness because how people ignored how creation shows God's invisible attributes, His eternal power, His, His, His Godhead, through the things He's made. And we always seem to associate it with creation, meaning the animal kingdom, nature, and a lot of times it seems like we skip over ourselves. We skip over the people next to us and realizing that the, the crowning achievement of God's creation, the greatest representation of who He is, is you and me. What's well, meant to point most vividly to who He is is what He implanted in us and how He created us. And so... How does this all work? What does this all mean? We're going to look into it deeply. And I just want to read a scripture to you from Psalm 139 and starting it off. Psalm 139 verse 13 through 18 tells us, and the psalmist is, is speaking to God. This is almost like a prayer. And, and Psalm 139 is one of my favorite psalms. I memorized the whole thing when I was a child, and I've never lost it. Um, but it says, You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed being, yet being incomplete. And in your book, the days that were ordained for me were written. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I wake, I am still with you. What an amazing prayer. But he talks in there about how incredible and wonderful God's works are, and the example he gives is himself, is what God made in him. He said, I'll praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So we're going to talk about that tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your love for us and for what you did in creating us truly special, truly unique in all creation. And I pray that you would just give us a glimpse into your heart and into your mind and to who you are in looking at your word tonight in this aspect of the creation account. Lord, we trust that your spirit is here with us as you promise. We thank you that you are here and that you are our teacher. So help us to hear from you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So picking up in Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to read again that latter part of the account, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over, over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so we're told here, clearly, that God took a break, and we mentioned this last week briefly, but God 
clearly took a break from his ordinary creation and made something special when he made mankind. You know, and this stands in such an incredible dichotomy as opposed to evolution. Again, reiterating the understanding how irreconcilable these things are. You know, the evolution truly makes death the hero of the story. Because all throughout the evolutionary process, millions and millions of failed mutations die. And over and over again, nature has to sort of try to improve itself and recreate itself. And through death, this slow, gradual improvement comes. And really, if you think about it, the essence, the message of evolution is that death created man. Really, where we came from is this gradual process of things dying, falling apart, mutating, and, and ev eventually evolving into what ultimately ended up being you and me. It's really kind of interesting. It's kind of backwards, because you look at Genesis, and it says the exact opposite, that through man's sin came death. Not through death came man, but through man came death, because we sinned. Through Adam, all sinned, as it says in Romans. And so there's an incredible contrast to be drawn between the evolutionary account and the creation account and how we came about. But you know what? When it says that we're made in his image, we're going to look at some of the different ways that we are made in his image and what that represents. First of all, we're seeing that we're given uniquely his, his characteristics, some of his attributes. And we, in Nehemiah 9, 17, it says... And they refused to listen and did not remember, speaking of the children of Israel, they did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. They became stubborn and they appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. And throughout the Old Testament, throughout Scripture, we see certain of the characteristics of God that are unique. And when you look at the animal kingdom, we possess certain characteristics, don't we, that the animal kingdom does not possess. The ability to, to love and to be compassionate or to render judgment, um, to make judgment calls on different things, to have mercy, um, to be slow to anger and have patience, to develop these different things, to have the ability to choose the way we do is a characteristic of God that he gave us. It's one of the ways that we represent him. God is eternal. Abram in Genesis 21:33 calls God the eternal and everlasting God. And Isaiah 40:28 says, "Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary; his understanding is unsearchable." You know, this truth really hit me this week cuz I didn't really think about it cuz we tend to think of this great difference between God and us him being eternal, and it's true in the sense that he is without both beginning and end, but do you realize we are without end? That he made us eternal. We are without end. We are not temporal creatures as the rest of nature is. We are not created like the animals or like the plants. We are not evolved from a rock. We are eternal. We get to see the rest of eternity. That's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it, that God made us in his image in that way, he created us eternal beings, not mere mortals. We're not simply temporary. He gave us the attribute of eternity, just as he has. And one of the 
most important things that I want to talk about tonight is what is implicated right here in Genesis and throughout Scripture, the clear doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God gave us a representation of that as well. In Genesis, he says, let us make man in our image. We just read it. And he constantly is referring to the other members of the Trinity. Matthew 28, we see in the Great Commission, Jesus talks clearly that there are three persons in one. He speaks about baptism, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? I think we all know as well in John 14 how Jesus is talking about how the Holy Spirit will come, and he says in verse 26, John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance the things that I said to you. So Jesus himself taught the doctrine of the Trinity. So there's no doubt, if you look at Scripture, obviously that the Trinity is 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 for real. It's the truth that we know our God is one God, but three persons in one. And it's this mysterious and amazing thing that we have a hard time wrapping our minds around. But we also can see that God, in making us in His image, gave us a little picture of that so we can understand it better. And He made us body, soul, and spirit. And this is shown in Scripture. And you know, this has been a confusing point of discussion and topic throughout. Uh, our culture throughout church, actually, um, we're confused on what this is and what this means. But we can see that there's a clear distinction made in Scripture. First Thessalonians 5.23, if you're following along and jotting these things down, says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So body, soul, and spirit, all three designed to work in harmony just as God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work inseparably from one another. The sad reality is what we witness today is corrupted, isn't it? We don't really get to see how beautiful that harmony is because we're in a fallen state. We, we inherited that sin nature from Adam. We don't get to see a, a really perfect representation of how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work in unison and oneness. But we still have that essence, body, soul, and spirit, and yet we're one person. So let's talk a little bit about that. First of all, the body. Why did God create this physical mortal body? In essence, it's kind of the outer shell. It's the facade. It's, it's, the, it's the presentation piece of who we really are. Our body is not really the essence of who we are, according to Scripture. Our eternal nature comes from our spirit. And the body is just kind of the temporary dwelling place of that spirit. It's the house. And Paul refers to it throughout the New Testament as his tent, doesn't he? He talks about his tent doing what? Wearing out, getting old. And so these bodies are not eternal. These bodies don't last forever. We know that. But this body is also... <laughs> Bill knows, can, can say amen to that? <laughs> you know, hey, I'm getting up there. I'm feeling it. And i tell you what, it seems like there's always some sort of ache and pain. I know, I'm all the gray hair and everything. But our bodies are that temporal representation, but I don't want to downplay how amazing our bodies are, how amazing this physical being that God created is as a representation of His image. You have to realize and think about the reality that when God created our physical bodies, that aspect of our trinity, our image of Him, He, is, he was bearing in mind that one day Christ Himself would walk in a body just like ours. 
And so he chose and designed our physical body with that in mind. How amazing is that to think? He chose and designed these physical bodies knowing that Jesus himself would be represented within it. And, and that is, should speak volumes as to the design and the thought and the intent that went into just our physical bodies to represent Christ and his glory, to represent God and who he is. You know, Jesus, he's called the Word, the Logos. You know, and we see that within our bodies. We see our DNA, all the information, the incredible information and complex systems that go on in our physical bodies. You know, we've heard, have you ever, how many have heard that if our DNA was stretched out, it would reach to the moon and back? Have you ever heard that? That's actually wrong. Um, I looked it up and did a little research on that. DNA, I'll just read you this little article that was recently published. Uh, in a scientific journal, DNA is a fine spirally coiled thread in the nucleus of every living cell. It serves as the guidebook. It tells the cells what they need to know, how to do things. It's, it's really that sort of how-to booklet. It contains all the information that allows our bodies to do what they do. So these strands are so fine, you need a high-power electron microscope to see them. Now, the human genome, the genetic code in each human cell, contains 23 DNA molecules, each containing anywhere from 500,000 to 2.5 million nucleotide pairs. So all that to say, DNA, DNA molecules this size are anywhere from 1.7 to 8.5 centimeters long when uncoiled. About 5 centimeters average. You have about 10 trillion cells in your body. So if you stretched out the DNA and all the cells out end to end, they would stretch over 744 million miles. The moon is only about 250,000 miles away. So if you were to stretch your DNA out, it would go, uh, the sun is 93 million miles away. So your DNA, would, in essence, would reach there and back about four times. That's how much information and code is in our bodies that God designed. Pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. How about our heart, our physical heart? Your heart beats an average, the average human, their heart beats an average 80 beats per minute which is about 4,800 times per hour or 1,115,000 times per day. Over the course of the year, your heart would beat approximately 42 million times. If you lived to be 80 years old, your heart would have beaten approximately 3,363,840,000,000 times. Um, a lot of times. And it's amazing to think how God created it, that it could even sustain that kind of stress and that kind of repetition. It's just, I mean, it's, it's really mind-blowing. Speaking of our mind, let's talk about the brain a little bit. No one knows for sure. The latest estimate is that our brain contains roughly about 86 billion brain cells. Each neuron connects with, on average, 40,000 synopsis. Synopsis is a junction between the nerve cells. It's where the little arc of information kind of shoots across. Each neuron connects with about 40,000 of those. A piece of brain tissue the size of a grain of sand contains 100,000 neurons and 1 billion in synopsis, all communicating with each other. A piece of sign of a grain of sand. All brain cells are not alike. There are as many as 10,000 specific types of neurons in the brain. The average brain has 50,000 thoughts per day, and sadly, 70% of them are believed to be negative. So something that God has to work in us, I think. 
you know, that's the reason God's word says a lot about taking your thoughts captive, submitting them to the obedience of Christ, how the joy of the Lord is our strength, how we're supposed to dwell on things that are good and noble and true and lovely. You know, we as a fallen creatures have a tendency towards the negative. More than 100,000 chemical reactions take place in your brain every single second. 100,000 chemical reactions every single second take place in your brain. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And our bodies truly do declare the glory of God and how great He is, how incredible His mind is, and speak of His character and His nature in as complex and amazing and mind-blowing as we are in our physical bodies, just one aspect of who we are, one of the three aspects of who we are. Um, it's nothing compared to the real deal, to what it was modeled after. It, it's one of those things where, again, you're going to have to see it to believe it, to know it, to experience it. We will never truly understand how great and marvelous and awesome our God is, whose image we represent until we get to experience and see him face to face. I look forward to that day. How about you? I look forward to that day. But let's talk about the second aspect. So the soul. What is the soul? What's the soul's purpose? What is, what is it really? Uh, again, this is one aspect that, th that there seems to be some confusion around, I think. And I know for me, I never thought about how we use soul and spirit so interchangeably in the church and in our culture. You know, we think of that old rhyme, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray, O oh Lord, my soul to keep. Tim Hawkins has an interesting rendition of that. If you've seen that, he talks about how, how, how that would give children nightmares if you really said that to them. So it goes on to talk about, if I die before I wake, I pray, Lord, my soul to take. What? What's up with that? Tell that to your two-year-old before he goes to sleep. But what's interesting about that whole little nursery rhyme is that it's completely inaccurate. As, and we again, we use our soul and spirit so interchangeably in our culture as if they're, they're synonymous, but they're not. According to God's word, they're very different. What are they? What is it? Uh, well, let's look at God's Word. Hebrews 4.12, if you want to turn there and join me, see what it says in Hebrews. We get a little bit of a clue here as to the soul versus the spirit. It says the Word of God, in verse 12, is living and powerful. This is a verse we all know well, isn't it? It's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit, and the joints and the marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There's no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's interesting here, but we see that God's word itself has the ability to separate the soul and the spirit. So obviously it indicates it can be separated. That there's a distinction made between the two. They're not synonymous. And so what is the soul? You know, God's word speaks a little bit more about this in Luke 1. Mary said... In her song, my soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in my God. In Psalm 23, well, I will go to that later. Um, so first of all, we see this distinction made throughout Scripture. There's uh, quite a few verses I have here, but I'm just going to focus on a couple. There's a distinction made between the soul and the spirit. In essence, um, the soul speaks to, of our mind, our consciousness, sometimes referred to as our heart. It's, it's sort of where the, the mental capacity and the emotions are, it speaks to, again, an aspect of us that science cannot touch. How can science explain why we even are conscious? 
why we can think, why we have emotions, why do we feel the way we do. Our soul is that aspect of us. And it's interesting, I, I really like this verse in Luke 1 where Mary talks about how her soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in my God and Savior. So, in other words, it's the mind that is making that choice to bring exaltation to the Lord and the spirit is rejoicing in it. And as we go on to talk about the spirit, we're going to find that the spirit is where our true fellowship with God lies. But before we move on, I want to bring out one other point about the soul, speaking of the heart or the mind. Proverbs 23, verse 6 and 7, there's a little phrase in there that's pretty well known. It says, Do not eat the bread of a miser, nor desire his delicacies, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. This word heart is the same word used for soul and translated throughout the Old Testament as such. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. The reason I bring this to light is it says, as he thinks in his heart. And it's talking again about the mind or the soul that's used. The same word is translated these different ways throughout the Old Testament. And we see them used interchangeably as well in the New. But it speaks to the power of our mind, the power of, of our consciousness. And, you know, God gave us a little representation of him in that as well. We think of God's creative power, the things that he accomplished when he decided to speak something into existence, when he decided uh, to do what he did. You know, it's, uh, again, we talked about how important it is to think on things that are pure and right and noble and all of this, all these things. We see how powerful of, of a part our soul plays in, in guiding us to do the right thing or to think the right thing. And many a times it's our soul that we have to make that conscious choice to allow our spirit to lead, to allow our spirit to be in, in the way that we walk. As it says in Romans, where it talks about walking in the spirit in chapter 8 of Romans, so we won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Many times we have to make that conscious choice to walk in the spirit. So there's a distinction made between the soul and the spirit. So what is the spirit? Well, the spirit is really the essence of who we truly are. Remember, we're eternal, and that is our spirit. And our spirit is really the only part of us that can truly worship God as he is meant to be worshipped and have a relationship with him uh, for eternity. It's the one part of us that really and truly can do that. In John 4, 24, it says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in what? In spirit and in truth. And say embody in truth. It says in spirit and in truth. And so the spirit is the part of us that truly communes with God, truly can understand and know Him. 1 Corinthians 2 gives us some insight as to the spirit and how and who has it and what that means. It says, as it is written in, in 1 Corinthians 2 9. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit of who is from God, that we may know the things that we have been freely given have been freely given to us by God. 
These things we also speak, not in words of man's wisdom, but which, that which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And so we see this, that the Spirit is essential for communion and knowledge of the things of God. Now everyone, according to this scripture and others, everyone is born with the Spirit. But until God makes that Spirit alive, makes quickens that Spirit, according as His Word says, it is He that quickens or makes alive that Spirit to where we can now be reborn in the Spirit and now have fellowship with Him. Until that happens, the natural man really is governed by the first two of the Trinity. The first two are what's strong and all that He cares about, isn't it? It's, it's your body, your physical pleasures, your physical wants, your physical needs, and it's your mind, your emotions. Follow your heart, as Disney says, right? But that's all that you think about when, until that spirit, spiritual part of you has awakened, until God has made you alive in the spirit, as it says in his word. You know, it's kind of like a flashlight. What kind of like flashlight? With flashlight, which as you all know, is basically a container for holding dead batteries. That's all it's good for. But you, if you have a flashlight, and you, until you put live batteries in it, it doesn't shine. And it's like the same thing with God infusing His Spirit and, and making, making us come alive. Or it's like that toy that doesn't have batteries yet. We have the, have the, have the shell, we have the, have the body and, and the soul and the capacity to understand and know the things of God. But until God makes that person alive, until God activates that spirit, so to speak, it doesn't do anything. So our spirit must be made alive in Christ. Jesus spoke of this when he talked to Nicodemus, right? And he talked about being born again. How was he to be born again? And Nicodemus was all caught up on his body being born again, wasn't he? What was Jesus talking about? The spirit being born. The spirit coming alive, really. And that's that second birth where we are made able to understand finally the things of God and commune and fellowship with him in a way that our body and soul cannot. So, we talked a little bit about this when we talked about the creation account. But I'm going to touch on it again because it ties into talking about this aspect of the Trinity of who we are. That God is still creating when it comes to us, in a sense. He is still making us new. He is still molding and shaping us as that potter shapes the clay, isn't he? We're taught in his word that we're that kind of ongoing project in some ways, where he still is working in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. And until that point in time, when we allow him to make us a new creation in Christ, we are spiritually dead. You know, there's a story. Um, I read this story uh, just recently about a London businessman named Lindsay Clegg, and he was working on selling a warehouse, and vandals had damaged the doors, smashed the windows, trash was strewn everywhere in the interior. So he was showing the warehouse to a prospective buyer, and he took great pains to make sure that, that the prospective buyer knew, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix the windows, I'm going to get this place cleaned out, I'm going to you know, have inspectors come through, fix any structural damage, all that good stuff. And the buyer said, you know what, forget about the repairs. 
when I buy this place, I'm going to build something completely different. I don't want the building. I want the site. You know, compared with the renovation that God has in mind for us, you know, our efforts to improve our own lives are as trivial as sweeping out the warehouse or fixing a busted window. And what God wants is to make something completely new. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says he makes all things new. He just wants the site and permission to build. And I want to encourage you to, to understand uh, not only how amazing and how great God is, just by looking at the person next to you, by looking at yourself, to really appreciate the Trinity of God, His glory and His greatness and who we are and what He's created in us. But I also want to encourage you that He's still working in you. And, and for those that we know who haven't yet been made that new creation, they need to know the good news. They need to know. And you know, we get, we get frustrated and struggle with people who are non-believers because they don't understand why we think the way we do, why we love God, how we experience Him, because they can't, because their spirit hasn't yet been made alive, because their spirit hasn't yet been made able to know the things of God. They must be reborn. We must share with them how they can know Christ too. And, and so I want to just encourage you with those things. Tonight's a little bit shorter, um, but there's, there's so much out there that can uh, that resources that you can study about how great, how amazing our bodies are. What God is the power that God has put within our spirit and in our soul, and um, uh, so that's I guess that's it. That's what I have for you tonight. I just want to encourage you in those things. Uh, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, and that your soul should know right well. So, with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for how you have made us to represent you. Lord, just the glory that is displayed in, in the trinity of who we are, uh, that is it's a, such a minuscule yet amazing and mind-blowing example, how great you must be. And Lord, one day we'll know. One day we'll really know how incredible you are. Thank you that you love us enough to want fellowship with us. You love us enough to have created us with the ability to actually choose you rather than have no other option but you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would pursue that relationship relentlessly. I pray that you would show us how you pursue us. I pray for your blessing on each person here tonight as we fellowship and as we go out from here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.